When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So, I'm going to tell you another story. Unlike most of my series, this one doesn't have much in the way of admirable characters. There aren't many great statesmen, or innovators, or builders, or even great warriors, with a few notable exceptions. It's not really a clash of civilizations, though rival powers will certainly exploit the slightest hint of weakness. What the story does have is ambition, violence, intrigue, and betrayal. Interesting times and interesting figures. And, happily for you and me, there's also a ton of fun nicknames. In order to get to the meat of the story, I have to lay some groundwork. And to do that, I have to pick a starting point. The one I've decided on unsurprisingly, is a figure riding at breakneck speed out into the Syrian desert. Now, I said this series lacks legendary warriors, and while that's pretty true for the bulk of the story, here at the beginning we're still in the age of heroes. Because our horseman is a 46-year-old Macedonian general who'd already fought in famous battles from Anatolia to India and back again. His name was Seleucus, later known as Nicator, or the Victor, and he was taking an enormous gamble to secure an enormous prize. Alexander the Great was only eleven years dead, and Seleucus was riding with a thousand men to the place he'd met his end. The satrapal capital of Babylon was momentarily ripe for the taking and Seleucus had been entrusted by his current commander with reclaiming the city from their rivals. Their rivals, of course, were fellow Macedonians, by the names of Antigonus Monothalamus, or One-Eyed, because, well, he'd lost an eye, and his son Demetrius, known as Polyorsites, or the Besieger, and a shout-out to Drew for that one. And just who was Seleucus fighting for? Well, irony alert if you know what's coming, because at the moment Seleucus was acting under orders of the effective ruler of Egypt, another former general of Alexander's named Ptolemy. 
The years since Alexander's death had seen a continent-spanning steel cage death match between his companions, relatives, and pretty much anyone who'd ever poured him a cup of wine. With the only through line being that whenever any one faction became too powerful, the others would join forces to tear them down. The current conflict was technically called the Third War of the Diadochi, the term for Alexander's successors. And a major engagement, the Battle of Gaza, had just been won by Ptolemy and Seleucus. Their main opponent, Demetrius the Besieger, had lost his war elephants, had his phalanx broken, and been forced to retreat to Phoenicia. But his father, old one-eyed, was still 100% determined to hold on to their Asian empire. Hence Seleucus's mad rush to Babylon in 312 BC. The city's satrap, appointed by Antigonus, had died in the Battle of Gaza, and his subordinate, a military commander named Diphilus, had taken on the role. But Seleucus had the distinct advantage of being both well-known and well-regarded in the city, the product of his being its satrap for five years earlier on. Seleucus had wisely used that time to earn the loyalty of Alexander's veterans now living in Babylon. He'd also wisely courted and bribed the city's notoriously powerful priesthood. Babylon fell with hardly a fight, but Seleucus was forced to defend what he held, first against the Antigonid satraps of Media to the north and Arya to the east, and then against Antigonus himself. Seleucus laid the groundwork by spreading prophecies, ginned up by Babylonian astrologers, that one day he'd kill Antigonus and rule over all of Asia. He also spread stories of dreams he'd had of Alexander the Great standing beside him. In more concrete terms, he also spent time conquering the local satrapies, including Media, Susiana, Persia, Parthia, and Arya. The line was apparently drawn at Bactria and Sogdia by a neutral, if uncompliant, satrap named Stasinor. So, having gone east as far as he could, Seleucus gathered his forces, made preparations, and waited for Antigonus to attack. And attack he did, first by sending his son Demetrius, and eventually by coming himself. Detailed histories of the era are scanty, but both Demetrius and Antigonus managed to capture all or part of the city of Babylon at various stages of the campaign. But in the end, neither was successful in defeating Seleucus, and both were eventually driven off. Just like that, Seleucus had fulfilled the first part of the prophecy and made himself master of Asia. He also soon proclaimed himself its king, imitating his rival Antigonus, who'd just done the same in Macedonia. Which is how, in 306 BC, the Seleucid Empire was born. Seleucus also imitated his fellow Diadochi by building a major new capital city and naming it after himself. 
Yes, we're talking about Seleucia on the Tigris. As historian John D. Granger points out, the cities founded by the other Diadochi were all on or close to the Mediterranean, a sea whose shores the Greeks and Macedonians were fully familiar with. But Seleucia was a bolder choice, deep in Mesopotamia and close to Alexander's capital of Babylon, though far enough away to avoid domination by that city's powerful priesthood. Using Seleucia as a military base, Seleucus campaigned further east, into Bactria, Sogdia, Arachosia, and eventually as far as the Indus. The ensuing conflict with the Indian emperor Chandragupta Maurya ended in stalemate, or possibly defeat for Seleucus. He was certainly forced to concede a few Indian satrapies. But either way, the key results were a treaty of peace and the establishment of a secure eastern border. The deal was sealed with an unusual trade— the hand of one of Seleucus's daughters in marriage in exchange for 500 Indian war elephants. So remember to check your exchange rates next time you travel. No matter what you think of the deal, it's pretty clear that the elephants were more help than the daughter would have been when Seleucus next faced off against Antigonus at the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC. This time, pretty much all the Diadochi had decided to gang up and crush Antigonus. And that's pretty much what happened. With the death of Antigonus, Seleucus fulfilled the second part of the Chaldean prophecy, and also gained control of most of Syria and part of eastern Anatolia. But he wasn't the only winner. King Ptolemy I of Egypt had already managed to secure most of the prime Mediterranean coastline, and had even renamed Bronze Age Akko as the city of Ptolemais. And remember that, it'll come in handy later. Seleucus turned his attention to recruiting more troops, which meant recruiting more Greek colonists in general, which meant in part, building major new cities to lure them out to the east. Among these were Seleucia Pieria, named after himself, Apamea, named after his Sogdian wife, and Laodicea, named after his mom, which is super sweet. And last but not least, a little town you may have heard of called Antioch on the Orontes named after his son and designated successor, Antiochus. Aside from their goal of attracting colonists, the cities had also been cited to meet strategic needs. As Granger points out, the four new cities in northern Syria were spread out in a quadrilateral, so that they established fortified control over the territory directly north of Ptolemy's chosen boundary along the Eleutheros Valley. Another city founded by Seleucus was Seleucia Zugma, or Seleucia the Bridge, later known simply as Zugma. The city's main bragging point was that it featured the very first permanent bridge over the Euphrates. And yes, that'll be on the test. 
Further downstream, Seleucus founded Dura Europos at the midway point between his two royal capitals of Seleucia Pieria and Seleucia on the Tigris. As a refresher, Dura was from Dur, the Babylonian word for fortress, and Europos was the name of Seleucus' hometown back in Macedonia. And in case you're wondering, the reason I'm spending time on all this, besides the interesting fact to me that all these legendary Syrian cities were founded by a single ruler, is because the cities of northern Syria will serve as the core of Seleucid territory right down to the bitter end. The wars of the Diadochi finally wound down in 281 BC when Seleucus defeated and killed Lysimachus, a victory that gained him possession of all of Anatolia. Since Ptolemy I had died a few years earlier, the 77-year-old Seleucus was now the last surviving companion of Alexander the Great still alive. He was also in a tempting position— Capture Thrace, Macedon, and Egypt, and he would have actually reforged the entirety of Alexander's empire. Even better, after his killing of Lysimachus, Thrace and Macedon were currently kingless, which meant that Egypt would really be the only tricky part. And yes, Egypt turned out to be tricky, just not in the way that Seleucus had expected. Because, as it happened, Seleucus was currently sheltering in exile from the Egyptian court named Ptolemy Karaunos, or the Thunderbolt, which is a pretty cool nickname. Karaunos was the eldest son of Ptolemy I, but apparently not his favorite. Because when Ptolemy died in 283 BC, his younger son was elevated as Ptolemy II Philadelphus which means brother-lover, but that was just hype, because Karaunus was forced to hit the road to avoid being killed by his brother. Since then, Karaunus had bounced around the Diadochi courts before finally ending up with Seleucus. And, true to his name, when he saw a chance for advancement— in this case, to succeed Lysimachus as king of Macedon, Karaunos struck like a thunderbolt. Seleucus had hardly stepped off the boat to begin his conquest of Thrace before the sneaky snake Karaunos literally stabbed him in the back. And just like that, on the verge of ultimate victory, Seleucus I, Seleucus the Victor, was dead on the dusty ground. His son Antiochus had already been made co-ruler some time back, so he instantly became Seleucid king the moment his father died. And while his heart likely burned with thoughts of revenge, there was little practically he could do. As Granger points out, Antiochus was likely far away at the time, possibly at Seleucia on the Tigris. Not to mention, on his father's death, he was also forced to immediately confront rebellions in Syria and Anatolia. And, just to close the loop, while Antiochus was occupied, Karaunos actually accomplished his goal of winning the kingship of Macedon. But two years later, he was killed in battle with the Galatians, 
Being thrown from his elephant, captured, beheaded, and having his head paraded around on a spear. So, six semper sneaky snakes, I guess. While the revolt in Syria was quickly contained, Antiochus I spent the next few years trying to regain control of Anatolia. And, to be honest, even his father's hold over the fractious territory had only been skin deep. The region's major players, Pergamon, Bithynia, and Pontus, each had their own plans and their own ambitions, and were no more favorably disposed toward Antiochus than they'd been toward any of his predecessors. While Antiochus did accomplish one major feat— defeating an invading army of Galatians and settling them in central Anatolia. In 274, he was forced to head back south. What was the problem? Oh, not much. Just a full-blown Egyptian invasion of Syria under Ptolemy II Philadelphus. And really, it was kind of Antiochus's fault. Since he'd been intriguing with the stepbrother of Ptolemy's, a guy named Magus, to undermine Ptolemy's rule back home. Magus was serving as Ptolemy's viceroy in Cyrenaica, just to the west of Egypt. And after Antiochus I offered Magus his daughter's hand in marriage, likely, again, just to mess with Ptolemy, Magus suddenly felt confident enough to make a bid for the Egyptian throne which may not have been what Antiochus intended, but, well, what are you going to do? Either way, Magus's rebellion quickly fizzled out, and Ptolemy used it as a convenient pretext to launch an invasion of Syria. This was the beginning of what's technically called the First Syrian War. And, just in case you're wondering how long this Ptolemaic-Seleucid rivalry will last, it's the first of six Syrian wars. Like the name implies, they were mostly fought in Syria, which also suggests the Seleucid kings were usually on the defensive. Not that they were innocent, not by a long shot, but it's also true that most of the time they were kind of on the back foot. Over five long years of fighting, Ptolemy II managed to gain possession of the southern coast of Anatolia. But eventually, both powers were compelled to break off to deal with other concerns. For Ptolemy, it was war in Greece, while for Antiochus, it was a rebellion in the east by his eldest son, Seleucus, which is the first documented instance of Seleucid infighting. Details are scarce, but the rebel prince Seleucus was executed, and his younger brother, Antiochus II, became the new Seleucid heir. Antiochus I spent the rest of his reign founding or refounding cities in central Anatolia, largely a repeat of his father's approach in Syria. These cities, along with their settlement by new Greek colonists, helped to secure Seleucid control over the region. They also helped to re-establish a Seleucid version of the Persian royal road, running from Seleucia on the Tigris all the way to Sardis. 
And last but not least, the cities maintained a defensive line against Ptolemaic holdings along the coast. In 263 BC, Antiochus I fought a major war against King Eumenes I of Pergamon, which means it's time for a quick digression. The founder of Pergamon's Atalid dynasty was a guy named Philetaris. Philetaris had been entrusted by Lysimachus way, way back with a huge treasury kept in the city. But seeing the writing on the wall, Philetaris had defected from Lysimachus to Seleucus back in 281 BC, and since then had remained a Seleucid vassal. But Philetaris had also used his enormous wealth to slowly expand his sphere of influence, until, in 263, his successor Eumenes I made his play for independence. The decisive battle fought near Sardis resulted in a defeat for Antiochus I and the emergence of Pergamon as a major power. Shortly after the battle, Antiochus died, and his son Antiochus II succeeded him. And pretty soon, just like clockwork, it was time for a second Syrian war. This conflict fought between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II, doesn't really have many events worth noting. But while it was fought, another Anatolian territory came to prominence. The kingdom of Cappadocia had been founded around the time of Alexander's death by a former Persian satrap named Ariarathes. It had been a Seleucid vassal since 301, but in 255, the latest king, Ariarathes III, felt sufficiently emboldened by a major victory over the Galatians to declare quasi-independence. Antiochus II was too busy fighting Egypt to make much of a fuss, so to keep him sweet, he offered Ariarathes his daughter's hand in marriage which is how Cappadocia joined Pergamon, Bithynia, Pontus, and the recently founded Galatia in the Czech's party mix of Anatolian powers. The Second Syrian War was costly to Egypt, and Antiochus II faced revolts in Babylon, so both sides were happy to conclude a truce. The terms included Antiochus taking Ptolemy II's daughter, Berenice, as a second wife, alongside his first wife, Laodice. Which is kind of odd, because, much like the ancient Egyptians, the Ptolemies weren't particularly known for handing off their princesses to foreign rulers. Even if those foreigners were, you know, fellow Macedonians. Anyway, as we all know, taking on a second wife is always 100% cool with everyone, with zero potential issues. Oh, except that Antiochus II's first wife, Laodice, apparently retaliated for the snub by poisoning him in the city of Ephesus in 246 BC. Actually, there's no solid proof of poisoning, but the dude was in his 40s when he suddenly dropped dead, so I think we can all do the math. The problem was that by that time, both of Antiochus's wives had young male sons, only one of whom could be the Seleucid heir. 
So upon the death of Antiochus II, it was very, very on. Laodice's son was named Seleucus, and Berenice's son was named Antiochus. And seriously, the Seleucid baby-naming book was more like a post-it note. As you might expect, each royal wife declared her son to be the only legitimate Seleucid heir. They then started rallying their respective power bases, Anatolia for Laodice, and Syria and Cilicia for Berenice. And while Laodice had the stronger claim, Berenice was far from helpless. Because, as it happened down in Egypt, Ptolemy II had just died, and his successor, Ptolemy III, also known as Berenice's brother, was only too happy to do what he could to lend her a helping hand. Laodice struck first, and she struck hard. Before the sides could even line up, her agents in Antioch were able to murder both Berenice and her son Antiochus. But by the time the news made its way south, Ptolemy's forces had already begun their invasion of Syria. The only thing that really changed was their stated motivation. From backing a legitimate Seleucid ruler, who also happened to be his nephew, to revenge for his sister's murder. Either way, as you may have guessed, we're now in our third Syrian war. And this is where the story intersects with Bloodline episode B24, The Yona Kings. Because Ptolemy III enlisted the aid of the Spartan general Xanthippus. With his help, the Ptolemies captured Antioch and, according to Granger, gained control of north Syria as far as the Euphrates and the Taurus Mountains. They may have even campaigned as far as Babylon, though they never captured the city. Meanwhile, Laodice and her son, the 19-year-old king Seleucus II, firmed up their hold on Anatolia by marrying two of Seleucus's sisters to the kings of Cappadocia and Pontus. Seleucus also installed his younger brother Antiochus as viceroy of Anatolia, while he made plans to retake Syria. And, if I may foreshadow a bit, this Antiochus would come to be nicknamed Hyrax, the Hawk, for his ambitious and grasping character. So, might want to put an asterisk next to that one. Seleucus II made a lightning strike for Seleucia on the Tigris, and managed to dislodge Ptolemy's forces. But the slow fight to reclaim Syria took much of the next four years. While Ptolemaic troops fought a holding action, the Egyptian fleet also used the distraction to seize key coastal cities in Anatolia. And even when a peace was finally agreed, the Ptolemies, super humiliatingly, managed to hold on to the Seleucid co-capital of Seleucia Pieria. Yeah, that's going to sting a bit. The end of the war was the start of more trouble, because, surprise, surprise, Seleucus II's younger brother Hyrax refused to give back Anatolia. Even more oddly, Hyrax was fully backed in this rebellion by their mother, Laodice. 
He was also backed by the various and sundry kingdoms of Anatolia, who relished the chance to fracture Seleucid power. Which is pretty much what happened. A major battle at Ankyra, modern Ankara, Turkey, in 237 BC, resulted in a victory for Hyrax and an effective split of the Seleucid kingdom. And here we cross back into Yona King's territory, because this was the time when Seleucid satraps in both Parthia and Bactria made bids for independence. And really, no Seleucid king had made it out east for the better part of 50 years, so it's kind of hard to blame them. It's also the period when the Central Asian Parni tribe, under their ruler Arsaces, invaded and conquered the province of Parthia. Not to mention that Seleucus II also had to deal with the constant string of revolts in Babylon and, well, let's just say his reign was less than fun. Sometime in the late 230s, Seleucus decided to strike out east to deal with the Parthian problem. Rebellious satraps might fall in line once a Seleucid king showed up on their doorstep, but invaders from the steppe were an entirely different matter. According to Granger, the army Seleucus II brought with him was likely not full strength, being depleted from the recent battle at Ankyra and the need to garrison Babylon. In fact, Seleucus may have been counting on help from the Bactrians to help him defeat the Parthians. But by the time Seleucus arrived, the Parthian king Arsaces had formed an alliance with the new Bactrian ruler Diodotus II, leaving him free to confront the Seleucids head-on. According to the historian Justin, Arsaces defeated Seleucus II, and the king was forced to return back home to deal with more trouble in Babylon. Meanwhile, up in Anatolia, the new big boy on the block was King Atalos I of Pergamon, who successively defeated the armies of both the Galatians and the rebel Seleucid prince Hyrax. The minute Seleucus learned of Hyrax's defeat, he sent trusted generals to retake Anatolia. But Atalos defeated Seleucus's forces, too. And again, just to close the loop, Seleucus's brother Hyrax went on to find refuge with the king of Armenia, then launched an invasion of Mesopotamia, which was pretty quickly put down. He eventually fled to Thrace, where he tried to set himself up as king. But, just like his sneaky snake predecessor Karaunos, Hyrax ended up getting killed by the Galatians, who were apparently the karma police of the ancient world. So, let's take stock. By 230 BC, Seleucus II had lost Bactria, Parthia, and Anatolia, Babylon was in constant revolt, and the Seleucid treasury in northern Syria had been thoroughly looted by the Ptolemies. And, insult to injury, they couldn't even use their own former seaside capital of Seleucia Pieria. Which, by the way, is a major reason why Antioch on the Orontes began taking on a larger role. Oh, and I should also mention that Right around this same time, Antioch also revolted against Seleucus, supposedly at the urging of his aunt Stratonice, 
and he was forced to besiege the city and have her executed in order to resume control. In 225, Seleucus II was making preparations for a major war against Pergamon when he fell from his horse and died. Man, what a stressful, crappy reign. His son and successor, Seleucus III, was also nicknamed Karaunos, the Thunderbolt, and he took up his father's plans to reconquer Anatolia. After some time spent in preparation, the 21-year-old Seleucid king marched north in 222. But according to Polybius, Seleucus III had barely crossed the Taurus Mountains before he was killed by one of his officers, who was immediately put to death. So, I mean, that's it, right? Game over, dynasty over, let's move on with history. Well, you're almost right. But Seleucus III had a younger brother, very creatively and cleverly named Antiochus, who was 20 years old in 222 BC. He was the last male heir of the family line, and if he failed or died, the Seleucid Empire really would be over. So, what happened? Well, despite my original plan, it looks like it'll take one more prologue episode to get us to the actual story. Which means next time we'll talk about Antiochus the Great, Seleucus IV, Antiochus IV, and the state of the Seleucid Empire they left behind.